Recorded live from safe spaces all around New York State, this is Transformation Thursday. I'm Amy Stevens, and my pronouns are she, her. And I'm Penny Sterling, and my pronouns are she, her. There is a part of me that will never forgive myself for being a victim for so long, for trying to ignore behavior that I knew was wrong. Those are the words of Lindsay Boylan, the former aide to Governor Andrew Cuomo, written in her candid, heartbreaking essay in Medium about the sexual abuse she endured at his hands. Abuse that was systemic and supported and almost part of her job description. Lindsay resigned her position and is now a candidate for Manhattan's borough president. Lindsay's account of that abuse made it safer for other women to come forward causing a major shift in the perception of the man once considered America's governor for his reaction to the COVID-19 pandemic. We're going to talk about how this has affected the careers of both people, as well as the impact on Lindsay's life when we sit down with Lindsay Boylan right after the traditional music swell and fade out. Let's talk about change, Amy. Okay, let me see. It looks like I've got three quarters, a nickel, a Canadian loony, and a few British tenors from when I was in London, because I'm an international comedian. No, not that change. Change is in transformation. The topic of Transformation Thursday. Oh yeah, that. Well, we're doing this podcast to highlight how much things change and how quickly they do it in society today. Everything changes and change isn't good or bad, it just is. The more we realize that change is just the natural progression of things, the better off we'll be. Now, let's talk about change. Didn't we just do that? No, no, not the last one. The first one, the coins, money, about how people can give us some of theirs so that we can continue talking about ours. Are you just trying to get people to go to our Patreon page to support this podcast so that we can continue our exploration of what it means to live in a rapidly changing world? Because although this is a labor of love, we do have expenses, and by going to TransformationThursday.com, they can help ensure that we can continue to be bringing this fun and insightful commentary on the world today, plus get exclusive patrons-only content. Um, if I say yes, can we get on to our next segment? Oh, God, I hope so. Okay, then. TransformationThursday.com. Also, can you break a 20 for me? Sure. I can get that to you in euros. Okay, now you're just showing off. Welcome back to Transformation Thursday. I'm Penny Sterling, and my pronouns are she, her. And I'm Amy Stevens, and my pronouns are she, her. Our guest this week is Manhattan Borough President Candidate Lindsay Boylan. Lindsay has spent nearly a decade applying bold, progressive ideas to the real problems facing the state of New York and New York City, the most progressive candidate in the race. Lindsay previously served as Deputy Secretary for Economic Development and Housing for the State of New York, where she oversaw the state's chief economic development agency. During her time in government, Lindsay secured millions of dollars for underfunded public housing, led the state's efforts to provide assistance for the people of Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria, and pushed to enact a $15 minimum wage and paid family leave policy for New Yorkers. She received her undergraduate degree from Wellesley College and her MBA from Columbia University and is committed to fighting for gender justice to ensure that all New Yorkers have access to opportunity and prosperity. A proud working mom, Lindsay is raising her daughter, Vivian, together with her husband, Leroy. 
Lindsay is also the woman who first publicly accused New York State Governor Andrew Cuomo of sexual abuse in a series of tweets and an article on her Medium page. These allegations have drastically affected her career and her personal life, and we're going to be talking to her about this today. Lindsay, welcome to Transformation Thursday. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we're so glad you're here. You have had one of the most interesting years um, uh, of, of anybody that I follow on Twitter. Uh, you're running for Manhattan Borough President, but what really made you, for lack of a better word, notorious is the Twitter, the, the, the Twitter thread and the Medium article you wrote detailing um, the long-term and systemic sexual abuse you suffered at the hands of your boss, New York State Governor Andrew Cuomo, during the years that you worked for him. Yep. And uh, this is a a podcast about transformations. And so we've seen a couple of transformations here. The transformation of him being the darling child of the left uh, with a fairly, you know, like a a book deal, uh, you know, Captain COVID, America's governor, uh, to being um, a, a person who, after you came out, more and more women came by, also echoing your charges of abuse. And uh, it has severely affected him, uh, if not in New York State, and, and for any sort of national um, campaign that he has. And it's also affected you as a, uh, as, as a person in politics who's trying to get a, a job in politics where you get elected. So... I was wondering if you could, in your own words, kind of give us uh, a little overview of what happened uh, with the governor, uh, mm-hmm. your job, and your and, and, and the fallout from all this systemic abuse, and where you are now. Sure. Uh, you know, I I think the reason, in part, why this has gotten such traction is not only because he is such a a well-known figure, especially in recent days, but also because it's such a ubiquitous story. I think for so many, particularly women, um, harassment in the workplace is pretty much expected. And the kind of harassment I detailed, which was my experience, which it was pervasive, it was uh, consistent, it was out in the open, and it was observed by pretty much all of the inner circle. And I think it was so pervasive that truly it was it was it was kind of expected. And I talk about that in the medium piece. And it took me a while to verbalize that because when that's a when when you work for the most powerful person in the state and one of the most powerful people in the country, and this kind of um, abuse is just out in the open and fostered by staff, particularly female staff. It's uh, a real, for lack of a better word, mindfuck. And see there, I said the bad word at the beginning. It's it's really- Oh, there are no bad words. Yeah. There are no bad words. There are just bad people who sometimes say words, but uh, go on with your, go on with the, with the story about yeah. uh, this. Yeah, it was consistent. And I think on some level, it's not that uh, extraordinary of a story because a lot of us have experienced these kinds of pervasive, overwhelming, overpowering environments that are abusive, right? Uh, and I think that's part of the story of 
uh, emerging story of women in the workplace is refusing that. And that is one of the things, one of the conditions that has to change for women to have achieved to a true equality in the workplace, just as an aside. Um, but for so long, I thought, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a good girl. I play by the rules, which is not to talk about the bad things that happen and just to move along with my life, right? And, and then a few things happened. Um, I have always cared a tremendous amount about women and bettering their station in society because I came from three generations of women who lost custody of their kids, uh, were basically made destitute and had to you know, contend with severe mental illness and addiction. And those kinds of stories about um, women uh, being spectacularly failed by our society is something that has always motivated me in part to be in politics. And so I knew on some level um, I needed to do something, particularly increasingly as a mom, as I have a daughter that I'm raising in this world and knowing that this is something she'll encounter if we don't change it and most likely in, you know, in all likelihood. And I, I listened to a number of things that just made me realize I couldn't wait until I was 85 to tell the story when perhaps the governor was no longer alive, when perhaps the power structure had shifted. Um, people like, um, you know, people who had told their stories far later in life and they were still crying about them. You know, this, the, my experience uh, is deeply, has deeply affected me. And, um, you know, when I talk about the things that have happened, I've had to speak with several investigators. It still makes me cry. And that's because we don't just get past the things that happen to us. We, we have to contend with them and make something out of them. And for me, when I heard uh, directly from a young woman who worked for the governor after me uh, and that her story mirrored my own, I had to do something about it because if I wasn't doing anything about it, then I was part of um, her abuse, right? And I was part of the abuse that would then continue to happen to other women. That's that's how I feel. That's, yeah, that's, that's what- very much- yeah, that, that's very much the way we see with with abuse of men of power. I was it's so so very much the 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 Harvey Weinstein story where everyone beat all the back channels are okay. Don't let yourself be alone with Harvey. Yeah, sort of thing. Everyone knew who Harvey was, and and I remember hearing stories about the governor being bad with women, but I didn't fully appreciate how there was no no exit. There was no way out. Um, if you left working for the state and you want to be in politics, you had no job, right? Um, you don't double cross the most powerful person in in the state and one of the most powerful people in the country. And it 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 at at some point, I just knew, having spoken to a young younger, much younger victim than myself. Mm. Uh, that I couldn't stand for it anymore. And this, and he was being elevated to be attorney general. And so that's originally when I came out with my series of tweets and, you know, I, I was summarily shut down and, and tried, to, you know, the, the governor and his team tried to smear and destroy me. And it took me time to actually process all the things that happened to me in a way that I could um, explain how uh, insidious this kind of abuse is. And that is what ultimately became the medium piece. It took me a good month and a half to go through all the you know, feelings, collect all the experiences that happened and be able to share what that looked like and how abusive it is and how wrong it is because people need to understand that in order to 
um, really realize how much we're harming uh, women. We're, um, you know, self-destructing uh, in cultures entirely by letting this kind of man lead and be continue his abuse. You know, Lindsay, I'm looking at that medium piece right now, and you use the word panicked on the morning of December 13th, and you're, you're, you're alluding to that now, but describe some of those feelings that got you to that place of panic that, I mean, that's a big step to take that panic and those feelings and put them out there for public consumption. So yeah. What are those yeah. feelings like for you at that point? So I, um, I had about a week before that I had spoken about the toxic environment. And in fact, I had spoken about a, a, a toxic culture and the governor's toxic culture for women you know, years in advance of that, but I had never said more. And a few papers, I think the New York Post maybe picked up that I talked about a toxic culture. And that's when this young woman reached out to me. She said on Twitter message, thank you for coming forward about your experience. I was sexually harassed by the governor. And then she started to tell her story and I hadn't shared being sexually harassed. And it was almost like I was reading my own story on paper. And frankly, I had a lot more sympathy for her than I did for myself. And that was where I had to step back and say, one, this happened, this really, this is really bad that it happened to me because I have such sympathy for her. And then, um, you know, we talked and I, I, I had a much deeper sense of guilt because if I had somehow been able to stop it or I had somehow raised the flag earlier, maybe this wouldn't have happened to this young woman. Maybe her life periodically wouldn't have been derailed by this monster. And I felt um, a deep sense of just, you know, sadness and guilt. And then I kind of go, I talked to my husband about it. Um, I try to go to sleep. I talked to my therapist about it. And then I wake up that weekend and he's being considered for attorney general. And I think that sense of panic combined with feeling culpable for not stopping the abuse, I, had, I knew I had to do something. And I knew my power was limited, right? My voice, my platform, my power is limited. And, and so I think panic describes um, me knowing what I had to do and knowing that it could be really harmful and that it would be really harmful to me and damaging to me. Like sometimes we do things that are um, the right thing to do. And I felt that deep sense of it being the right thing to do, but I felt like it was very much maybe the wrong thing for me personally. And that's why I didn't tell my husband, you know? Yeah, and it's really hard uh, to, to do that. It's really hard to be the first person um, because it's so much easier to, to marginalize one person. And there was no guarantee that any other women were going to speak up because this is such a hard uh, system to, to, to do. It's very hard to do these sorts yeah. of things. Yes. It, how, how, how much courage did it take for you to come out and actually start talking about this? Can you talk about that, that feeling of, you know, do I, do I, do I actually, cause it's, it, you're right. You had already said this. There was a chance that you were going to end be, your career. Yeah. Be destroyed by it. Yeah. Um, you know, I was raised in Southern California and, you know, I loved being in the ocean and catching big waves and, um, it kind of felt like when I was doing this thread, um, everyone around me, my daughter, my husband was somewhere else momentarily. And I was going off a cliff because it was kind of like going off of a cliff. And um, I didn't know where I was going to land. 
uh, I just knew that this would make a big wave and, and that it would, you know, likely be very harmful to me personally. But part of um, growing up in a family where a lot of things went wrong, particularly for women, I had kind of steeled myself from a young age to constantly ask myself, am I going to be brave enough to do something that's courageous when it might really hurt me? And knowing that that's probably what is required in a lot of cases. And I think because I had kind of trained myself for whatever reason, I was a weird kid, um, <laughs> but trained myself from like, you know, a very young age to, to think like, am I going to be brave enough to do the hard thing when it's required of me? I knew that this was one of those moments that I was being called to be brave um, regardless of how it might affect me. And I really did know that. I had a deep sense of knowing that I think we are only lucky enough to have sometimes in our lives. Um, and I think I needed that to do it because I know how harmful it is. I worked for this monster for uh, several years. I know what he does to people and I know how he um, smears people, tries to destroy their lives, even for the smallest slight. You know, this is a monster. Um, and I know him a lot better than he knows me because he thinks of women as uh, playthings and tools. So of course he doesn't know who I am. I know who he is. Um, and that was really tough. And it was really hard because I think so many people, my family, my extended family had spent so much of their lives trying to help lift me up so I could do something important. And I think maybe it was harder for them to see that this was part of me doing something important, right? And and I, I on some level, I knew that this was part of that, even though it was pretty tough. <laughs> yeah, and the, the, the part that, that I find particularly heartbreaking is the women in yeah. his office who, who backed this up, this sort of patriarchal attitude. Yeah. yeah. Did you did did you feel like there was a club and you weren't part of it even even before all of this happened? Yeah, I think that part of uh, the toxic culture that um, this man has fostered is is to um, and this is pretty standard for abusers is to make you feel isolated and. Um, there is there's a group of women who work in that office who very much um, know the drill and um, basically feed women to this monster and reinforce that if you if you want to do your job, he better he, he better not be mad at you. And that whole culture means that you have nowhere to turn. There's nowhere to say there's no I mean, I went to a women's college, so my closest allies and friends are other women. And, and what do you do when you have an ally and a friend or a mentor? You look at them and you say, this is wrong, right? This isn't right. We got to do something about that. Um, but instead, he had fostered a culture where there was a group of women protecting him. And basically, um, you know, he weaponized, he weaponized um, uh, feminism. In, in, in my view, he created a women's equality party to make it impossible for a woman to beat him to the governor's office. Uh, he elevated the first woman to the secretary to the governor role and had her create a women and girls um, committee that would basically use um, the power or you know try to use the power of feminism and women's equality as a cudgel against other women. And in many ways, uh, you know, I for did her, if we were gonna have someone head uh, a council on girls and women, 
you would think um, the if you know having the really powerful lieutenant governor who happens to be a woman would lead that. But um, I think Anne's asking that question, why she didn't, has everything to do with um, how he chose to empower uh, women. And it wasn't really to empower them. It was to um, basically give himself more control over women. And, and that's a really insidious, toxic, damaging, and destructive way to try and um, weaponize women against each other. And he did that. And I think, you know, I can tell my story experience about that, but it's also the very same one that Rebecca Tradster speaks about in her lengthy piece on the governor and the culture he created. And I'm not, you know, in that piece. Uh, that is dozens of other people speaking about the environment and how toxic it was and how he tried to monopolize uh, the idea of feminism and, and used it con to control and abuse women in, in particular. Yeah. How do we combat that? Uh, well, you, because you're the one who's who's getting into this to this this business, who's in this business. Uh, yeah. How do you as a as a I mean, because there are women out there who have internalized misogyny and use it because they know that they play in the white males, white man's world. So they sure. play by those rules. How do you set up a system and and start changing that? Sure. Well, I think even I've had maternal uh, internalized misogyny. I went to Wellesley College, you know, I would say one of the poster children for, you know, true women's liberation and equality. Um, but for so many years, I thought I had to be quiet and be the good girl about this. And that the best I could do was to actually rise to every, every occasion and to be perfect and to um, be responsive to what this abuser um, you know, delineated was the right way for women to be. So I had internalized misogyny. And even in my fear of coming forward, oh, I don't want to be the bad girl. You know, I don't want to be the one who goes, colors outside the lines or does what she's not supposed to or says something uncomfortable. That inclination is internalized misogyny, right? So um I get why there's a small but vocal group of women who hate everything about me, right? Because they're feeding into this. Um, I think it requires, look, we're at a point in time where uh, more women get uh, degrees, undergraduate and graduate degrees than men. Uh, and yet something happens, a number of things happen in early working years to mid working years where by and large women opt out. And one of those things is caregiving but another one is this uh, toxic culture for women that has everything to do with what I've just mentioned and caregiving, right? And, and, and having children or, or making different choices in one's life. And the only way we're gonna change that, because we have come a long way. If I had come forward 50 years ago, I would probably be institutionalized right now, right? I mean, just being honest. So we have come a long way. And the only way we're gonna break through, I think, is to probably have some some court cases, some big legal settlements. And that's not just mine because I'm not suing anyone currently. Um, I am engaged in several investigations, but it requires bringing the lawyers in, right? Because um, even in, when I hear and I read about people's understanding of harassment, we have a long way to go in terms of public education to have even our culture meet the law. The law is actually pr further along in terms of what dictates harassment 
but there are still so many conversations that need to be had. And unfortunately they need to be had in public. And the only way for those to be had in public in many cases is for, um, you know, legal filings and adjudication and the like. And it's interesting to me because at the same time that I had come forward with all of this, um, you know, around the same time, a, a classmate of mine from Wellesley happens to be suing her employer, Amazon, for both um, race-based and gender-based harassment and discrimination. And we've lived different lives and we've found ourselves in similar situations. And and that's all to say, I think to change this deep culture, um, we're gonna see some major lawsuits and settlements is my guess. And that, you know, I, I'm not speaking of myself personally, I'm just saying that, um, the work environments, um, corporate and political work environments respond to, unfortunately, legal issues, wranglings, the fear of, of big settlements and the like. And I think that having the, the fear and needing to create cultures that truly foster um, equality and mutual respect is we're probably going through you know a decade or so of, of big cases is my guess. Well, you, you mentioned in there the decade of big cases coming up, but then if we also look back generationally, there's a group here based in Rochester as a Facebook group that I support Governor Cuomo, and they were on public radio this week, at least here on WXXI, they had a news piece, and that seems to be a generational change where older women in the workplace just put up with it, and it was just the price they had to pay, so how do, is this part of that process and changing that perspective, and how do we work with older women who are still in the workplace to get them to come around too and say, this is, you know, you can help future generations. Yes, it is. I mean, it's true. And there is, uh, I'll absolutely say a generational divide on this. Now I will say that some of the people who have been most supportive of me are older women. Um, but, uh, the, the, you know, the articles you described and there's a, a Facebook group, you know, women for Cuomo, um, I think that there's a mentality in this small group of vocal supporters that tend to be older, um, generationally uh, older and um, white women, uh, that you just have to put up with it. And that it veers from, you have to put up with it. He did nothing wrong. You're lying, which is all three different things, right? But somehow all of those things are true for them. What happened to you wasn't that bad and also you're lying, which is, I think, a weird, you know, tautology in itself. But um, what I say, because I do encounter women um, in New York, people that I'm hoping to represent even, that uh, think, Lindsay, you went too far, or we're go women are going too far. And of course, I don't believe that. But I, I try and take a step back and one, realize that when people are saying something like that to you, it has nothing to do with you and it has everything to do with them, right? Because as you said, Amy, um, it this is just what women put up with, right? This is what people had to go through. Um, and I think that the only way to respond to that is to give people time and space and say, you're completely right that women had to put up with far too much and they shouldn't have had to. You shouldn't have had to put up with that. At the same time, it doesn't mean that this generation of women is going to put up with that. Both of these things can be true and it doesn't undermine um, what you went through and how unfair it was. And I try to just leave the person that I'm talking to with that, 
that what happened to you was unfair because deep down i think um a lot of people who are reacting emotionally that means they're reacting from their own place of pain and maybe we won't see eye to eye but i know that i'm right about this in terms of where we need to go as a country um, and as a culture um, and i know that because i refuse to leave this this environment to my daughter right so you can respect the pain that goes into someone not willing to believe you or angry that you've come forward um, and and acknowledge that and hopefully give them space to become um, a, a more open-minded person about these things and then keep going with your work. Because I think what I found is, you know, not just women, there are a lot of men who, who don't want to be a part of this culture. I mean, um, I think that there are probably a lot of men, and I've heard this, they see Andrew Cuomo on TV and they say, that guy looks like a bad guy. When I hear about what that guy has done, he's a bad guy. And what man wants to be associated with someone who's such a bad guy? Let's turn the tables on him and, and not have it be soul searching always for women, right? This guy's a bad guy. He lies about people dying in nursing homes he sells his story as a public servant for millions of dollars. He tries to smear people with lies. What a bad guy. And what other man wants to be associated with that? I mean, let's turn the tables there because I hear that a lot. You know, guys are like, I never liked that guy. I didn't trust him and that I've heard all these things and he's been caught in so many lies. I'm glad that that era is going to be over. Um, and I think that that's a good way to think of it too, you know? Yeah, it's a bit of a toxic masculinity thing because as you're saying that, I can like sit here and, and, and list off people who would look at all those things and him being a bad guy as admirable traits. I mean, that's how we got our last president, for crying yes. out loud. Yes, uh, yes. So, this yeah, you're right. It's, it's a battle that we have to disrupt. I mean, you're right. Our last president was this way. And that means we're in a fight for our lives and our culture. Yeah. And I think right. and I think Penny and I have this unique viewpoint of like we were at some levels on that side of it before we transitioned and we have been mansplained. We have been sexually yeah. harassed, assaulted at various points in my life, pre-transition and even post-transition. And so to have, you know, so we have this unique viewpoint that says walking away from toxic masculinity. It's not that we don't value masculinity and the positive roles that men play in our lives and other masculine presenting folks, but there, but we need to do this with positive that lifts all people up. And I think that's the message I'm hearing from you right now. Yes, yes, exactly. And I feel like you would have a tremendous amount of experience to be able to observe <laughs> and dispassionately what all of this means and how it's toxic and how it harms everyone, right? So I think that's a really valuable experience. And um, I do hope to create, like, I hate the time, the idea of a big tent because I feel like it's overused, but anyone can be a part of stopping this. It's kind of like the bystander. I mean, I think like we started with, um, and I think Penny, you, you, you mentioned kind of women who were silent or, or manipulated in the office to, to foster this culture. And it's absolutely truth. And I think that's one of the most painful things is this idea of bystanders instead of people who activate themselves. And on some level, um, until I decided to really do something about this, I was a bystander in this happening to other women. So I think that the positive side of that is 
everyone can be activated to do something about toxic environments. Everyone, really, even in small ways. And um, I think that there's a hopefulness in that. Yeah. So moving forward in all of this, um, Governor Cuomo in 2019 uh, said that he was going to seek a fourth term. And uh, the person who looks like they're going to be the uh, GOP candidate, uh, Lee Zeldin, right. uh, who, uh, yeah, I know, like basically Lee Zeldin's can, um, platform would basically point to every single thing that you believe is good, just and equitable governance and say, not that. Yeah. Uh, it, so, you know, yeah, now he... we're looking, looking forward at, to, a, to a campaign between these two people. Yeah. Yeah. My hope is so um, having worked for this 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 monster, um, knowing who he is, he's not going to resign and he is not going to be dissuaded from running again. Right. So unless he's impeached um, and removed from office, that is exactly what will happen. Um, but my hope that, you know, I actually don't I don't want to hope that far in advance because um, I think it would be speculative. But I will just say that I think the answer isn't Andrew Cuomo or Lee Zeldin. Um, I think I am a progressive. Um, I think we need to be moving in all these directions that um, are much more inclusive in society and uh, prioritize people in pain the most in terms of resources. And that never is going to lead me to Lee Zeldin. Um, so, you know, I think, I do think, uh, I mean, of course we did have Donald Trump as president, but, uh, so there are indications other ways, but I do think that people see through um, tactics. And I don't think that the answer to someone like Andrew Cuomo is that. And I, my hope is that it will be very clear as it already is to me and to many others, what a corrupt person Andrew Cuomo is and that um, others will be inspired to um, fill the real vacuum of leadership that's so required. I mean, we are going to be we're in a very challenging time in New York. Um, we were hit hardest by the pandemic. Uh, there will be a long path to recovery. And the last thing we need is someone who thinks of themselves before uh, New Yorkers, which is what this governor does. Well, and I, so, but is there space on the left for anybody to actually come in and run to the left of him and primary him next year? I think you will see that for sure. That's And, I, and I'm hopeful of that. Um, I don't know who that would be, but you know, I think, I think that absolutely. I mean, just as many um, for every one of these uh, women for Andrew Cuomo Facebook, you know, people that there is, there's so many more who are disgusted, and it's it, separate everything with the harassment um, reality that he, this this culture for women that he fostered. He's personally profiting off of that office and he's evading the truth. And if I had had a loved one pass away, like so many did, I mean, I've gotten to know Janice Dean a little bit through this process and I, and I love her because she's been advocating for people that she doesn't know. And this is a man who would um, lie about the truth any day of the week and does. So, you know, we, how can you trust someone like that? And I do think um people don't have the time to live their lives in politics but at the end of the day they per pervasive messages get through and i think it is pretty clear and will continue to be clearer that this man is a liar and an abuser and completely self-absorbed yeah the thing that gets me though 
as I was looking at this and, and watch and, and reading this and setting up for today, just it's very necessary. And thank God you did what you did. And it's and it is very not vital and important. But God, is it inconvenient? Yeah, for it you is. and yeah. for so many others. It's yeah. just a, 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 a you know, it's exhausting just looking at and hearing and thinking about everything that you have to deal with in order uh, to, to to do this and also be a mother and yeah. be a candidate for for yourself. And it's it's I, I'm just tired thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. It's you know, I think um, one of the thing and I know this is an important issue, I think, to both of you, um, but even before this this race that I've been very focused on mental health because as I think I explained to you, I come from a family um, with several generations of mental illness. And so um, one of the things I care a lot about is fighting for true equity. Um, obviously we're fighting for equity in, in medical healthcare, um, but we also need to fight for mental healthcare equity, right? And we don't have anything near that. And I think um, I've actually been amazed at how even being in the middle of a story, which I've been so so much frequently, that I have to do the um, the important work of explaining, you know, um, trauma informed um, questions. Uh, just how I've had to train, I feel, um, journalists in interactions with me. So I'll say, okay, if, if this is an interview about my candidacy. Right. And they say, yes. And I say, are you going to ask me about the Cuomo stuff? And this was earlier. I mean, I think now I'm a little bit further along, but at a certain point it was really raw. And I would have to say, okay, so can you please put that at the end of the interview? Because once I go into that space, it's going to be hard for me to kind of like reel it back in. And, and people are perfectly fine with that. Um, but I even find that the field of journalism is a business like anything else and people are there to get to the story first and I mean even now people want me to interview and tell basically the medium piece and I'm not interested in doing that I've done it multiple times for investigators but um, I've tried to explain to people that I'm not interested in you know that I don't, I don't recall it, like the pain porn I feel like people need me to tell them in front of them what has occurred even though they have the evidence which i have supplied evidence and in my medium piece um and i have corroborating reports and i've already told this story but people there's there's something in the human condition that wants to see the car accident right and you don't want to just you don't just drive by it you want to see it and i do think it requires cross-programming to change that and a big part of why i think victims are um, or survivors are afraid to come forward is because that's a really painful experience it's like it's like scub is you know like stubbing your toe and then getting in a car and leaving your toe on the ground you know it's a painful process and um i hope that in any small ways that i push back in any of this process which i've had the privilege to do a lot will help inform future interactions people have, you know, as journalists or as, as public officials or, or um, investigators. I think the investigators, um, they've, they've are better prepared for this because they have to deal with people who are being, you know, or have been through trauma all the time. But I do not think journalists uh, by and large have, have experienced this. And 
the culture needs to change because I can tell you, we would be able to change a lot more than we already are if women and if any victim or survivor did not feel so um, uh, victimized by the experience. I mean, I had people paparazzi at my house <laughs> right after, I'm just a mom, you know, like taking my kid to school and to be photographed and, you know, a giant line lens camera that you see someone's hiding from you and they don't say a word, it's silent and you just hear the clicks that's a weird experience. It's kind of like being victimized all over again. And um, that's not gonna change on its own. But I think the awareness that people have of, you know, this is, it is not fun to come forward. Like this Cuomo, women for Cuomo group, they think, oh, she's doing this for attention. I can tell you, this is not the kind of attention I would enjoy. <laughs> No, and you mentioned mental health care, and Aaron, we we and I mentioned before we started recording that I'm a graduate student, and I'm actually working on my licensed mental health counseling credentials. So, and in New York, we have such arcane laws around mental health care. So, as you start moving into your election bid here and for the primaries next month, you know, do you talk about mental health care when you're, you know, you know, being in your candidacy, do we talk about access for services in New York City, Manhattan, wherever? Because there's so many, there's so many communities that need that access. Huge. Um, it's a huge piece of everything I do, either implicitly from a policy and access standpoint in terms of getting healthcare services. Um, it, it connects to every issue I have. So, housing issues, even the the premise of um, an eviction moratorium doesn't prevent people from going through the mental instability and fear of not knowing if they're going to have a house and even just that precept like a shelter alone think about the mental health um uh, issues created by this pandemic even um you know people who've who, who are in communities who've lost a parent um kids and and by the way all of these things cross-reference with um um, higher poverty rates, higher death rates, um, predominantly communities of color who've been disenfranchised in every way. So the mental health crisis, just from this, we already had one in this, we already had a pandemic of mental health crisis in this country. Now we have it times, you know, factor of 10 or whatever you want to say. And, and there are so many communities because we are still in our nascent stages of health, mental health care provision in this country, like access and provision. Um, that we need to bring mental health care to communities rather than the other way around. And we also need um, culturally aware and affirming mental health care experiences. All of these things were already on short supply before this, but you wanna interact with a mental health care person who understands your lived experience to a certain extent, right? Um, that can be on issues of gender and sex and race and, and all of these things. Um, how am I gonna use every tool that I have when I get into this office of borough president to bring those resources to communities because the, the harder you make it for people to ask mental health access mental health care the less they're going to do it I'll just give you an example like being a mom even and, and I come from a place of privilege where I I get to talk to my therapist once a week and so that's great but um, in the case of most people you make that outreach when you need it you're in an emergency and you are told the therapist that is covered under, you know, Medicare can see you in three weeks, right? And then you go away and you don't get the resources you need. So how do we, where we are now, 
use this patchwork, what is now patchwork that needs to change, but to get mental health care to many more people than have it currently and to get it most to our most, um, you know, uh, people experiencing the most pain, people in housing instability, people experiencing homelessness, people, you know, it, it, it kills me that to some extent people get out of, for example, um, the, the justice system, they get out of prison or jail and, and in prison, they may have been receiving, you know, let's say um, mental health based meds that helped them, you know, be where they needed to be, um, chemically speaking, um, just as one example. And then they get out and they have no access to any of these things. And that's even if they have a good opportunity, like, you know, my sister, when she was in the, um, uh, prison system, uh, dealing with addiction issues. Um, then you get out and you've got no help. So basically we leave people who need the most assistance to find their place of stability with the least options to do that. And, and every resource, I mean, that's the reason why I'm go I've been in this field of, of government, my whole career is that I really do believe if we um, focus uh, resources on people closest to the pain. In this case, it's um, who've experienced the most trauma. We will produce a much better society. And, and so I'm going to be focusing a lot of energy on that. And I also think there's a generational element here, right? Because um, if I were a politician 20, 30 years ago, and I talked about my therapist, I would have been, I would have been, you know, laughed out of the room, right? That would, I would not be, people would say, oh, she's got a problem. She sees a therapist. She needs to go, we can't have her represent us. And I think we're finally in a, a moment in time where people are being more real about, about the reality of how important mental health care is, uh, whatever, you know, whatever level, whatever approach or tool someone is using. That's amazing. And you're going to try and do that as borough president, which I I'm, until I saw, I follow you on Twitter, and until I saw you announce that you're running for borough president, I had no idea that there was a position of borough president. I don't think there's an off, that may be one of the smallest groups of elected officials in the United States. What is a borough president for those of us who do not live in boroughs? Like, habits or we think about it this way um you know our i've heard various statistics the city of new york's school bus system if it were you know thinking of it as its own company would it be a fortune 500 company <laughs> it just shows you that the scale of this city is massive right so it's no surprise that the governing principles of how you take care of this city end up having a lot more um, roles, let's say, um, and responsibilities than maybe some other municipalities, right? So Manhattan is a really big place. You know, we've got over a million people in this borough alone, and it's the, the economic heart of our city and our state, frankly. It's many ways the cultural heart of much of our city and our state. And, and so this is a real opportunity. And the borough president's roles themselves, one of the five boroughs Manhattan is, um, is all about land use and zoning and community boards. So it sounds kind of wonky-ish and it is in a way, but basically what that means is it's all, it's the job uh, where you're supposed to think about how we resource the city, how we build it, and what do we invest in to help our people. And so you can imagine there's no more important time than when we're in, you know, in many ways, an economic depression, we are going to be coming out of this pandemic. How do we resource our borough? 
How do we build to get more affordable housing? How do we respond to the climate crisis? And how do we help people recover in a way that fosters a livable city, not just some end goal for getting X, you know, corporate headquarters to the city? So it's it's the job that, that makes decisions and resources around issues of livability and sustainability, in my view, and equity. You mentioned sustainability and livability. Manhattan's expensive, so how do we take, you know, that wealth gap and make, especially Manhattan, accessible for people that need to live there to serve in the communities there, to, you know, sweep the floors, to be nurses, police officers, whatever those jobs are, how do, how do we make Manhattan affordable? Yeah. Or at least enough livable. I- yeah, you're right. It's this. It's the question, right? So Manhattan is in many ways the microcosm of the country because we have the most unequal, you know, the most extremes here. Uh, we have, you know, X million billionaires, excuse me, and then we have um, people living in underfunded um, public housing, NYCHA, as we call it in the city, and and it, those and our public housing facilities are have been disinvested in for decades so we have all the extremes we have in this city one in four people one in four families experiencing homelessness in the whole country is just in this city and you can wow. bet that the extremes are even more pronounced in manhattan right of that so we've got all the problems of the country i think to some extent um, in the medium term, a lot of these things are being fought back in, 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 in progressive in the progressive fight for things like, you know, fair um, cost based minimum wage, not just $15. They're being fought back with, um, you know, more graduated taxes on the wealthy. Um, they're being fought back with uh, ultimately things that will be adjudicated at the state legislature, like um, pay to tear tax, because you've got all these empty luxury apartments that no one is using and that people owning them are not paying into the city, right? And its benefits. So some of those things to, in essence, um, uh, appropriately tax our richest populations are changing now. Um, And that will have an impact on how people price living in the city. Um, But we need more affordable housing. We need more building. We need more investment in that, in the public realm and more commitment to build more public housing and more affordable housing. And the historical way to approach that as promoted by a lot of big real estate interests was simply to build more luxury and have a percentage of that be. But that just bakes into the cake displacement. And, And we've got to approach this problem focused on how do we make this place as livable as possible for people who have the most scarcity of resources? How do we give them more resources and how do we make it easier for them to live and raise their children here? Because if you can only live in a place, but you know that your kids can't, that's actually not creating quality of life. So I think we need to think um, much more long-term. We need to think about um, divesting this idea of getting affordable housing from luxury. Um, And we need to focus on listening to the people who've been closest to the pain. And I think what we have been focused on in the city is listening to real estate developers, (laughs) to be candid. Yeah, we we, we have the similar thing here in in Rochester, where there's a whole bunch of uh, apartments and condominiums going up, and they are all overpriced, and they, they do not serve 
So there's a that that model, and it, it breaks my heart. And I like I do a lot of bicycling, and I ride past a lot of these places, and they all look empty. They're, they're pretty, but they're empty, and they're not even paid yeah. to tear. They're yes. just not being filled. Yes, but you're Gotham has called you Gotham has called you the most progressive candidate for Manhattan borough, and you are a, obviously a, have a very high activism spirit. How do you, as an activist? translate that into an internal job in the governance of New York and the governance of Manhattan. Are you going to be running into a lot of brick walls? Are you going to try and fundamentally change the nature yeah. of what a borough presidency is? Yeah, I think so. Yes and yes. Um, but one of the things I didn't talk so much about is a, is a tool that the borough president has, which is in the appointment of community board members. And so, again, like the borough president's title, community boards are maybe something that are kind of our, our, our sound arcane outside of New York City. But basically, they're community driven boards that weigh in on land use decisions that uh, that give give out basically liquor licenses for restaurants and small businesses adjudicate things like open streets and you know pedestrianization and the like and the the borough president for all intents and purposes uh, appoints those boards so if i'm not going to be always making friends in city council or perhaps in the mayor's office depending on who gets elected or and, and of course in, in the governor you know working with the state i've got to have um let's say i don't want to call it an army but a, a support base of people of like-minded people who are focused on the future of the city and the same things. And I'm going to get that through the community board. And I think one of the challenges, and the community boards do a great work now, but I think a lot of people on community boards feel like they serve their elected. And what a perversion of um, how public service is supposed to work. You get put on a board and then it's your job to do what your city council member wants you to do. I mean, that's the opposite mm -hmm. way of how, how government is supposed to work you're supposed to be appointed because you have a pulse on the community and you're close to their pain. And then you tell the guy or the lady who works for you, which is me, I'll be working for them. Here's what we need in our community and here's how we have to approach it. So I think we need to turn a lot of how government works on its head in this city. Um, and in order to be successful, I need to have a whole community of people who have the same vision. And that vision is for a more livable city and more equitable and sustainable. And then we can, you know, the sky's the limit. If you create um, a culture where there's uh, shared goals and a sense that you're going to approach them in a progressive manner. And then I don't see the mayor saying, no, 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 community boards of Manhattan, you don't know what your community wants. I know better what your community wants. And so I think um, it will require cultivation and good management and partnership and teamwork. Uh, but I'm excited for that. And it will be turning how things work on their head. And it will be creating some powerful enemies like I'm so good at doing. Um, so, but to a certain extent, uh, that's, you know, that part of that like good girl thing. I spent, um, you know, two decades of my career doing everything right, making really powerful men look good. And now I'm spending maybe the next two decades of my career trying to undo some of the harm and focus on finding a different way forward. Uh, so I, I think that's probably how life is, right? You get to 30 or 35 and then you realize you kind of do the inverse with some of what you've learned about how the world works. You know what else is great for city government turning it on its head and making the world a better place? Donuts. Yes. 
<laughs> no, donuts are an economic development solution. Donuts are amazing. And you know what? You go to a donut shop, you can ask three questions of the, the donut shop owner and they tell you what's happening on their block without fail. It's amazing. Yeah. I think it's brilliant that you did that because I saw that donut tour you did of Manhattan and as, as a kind of like a, of a, as a, a moving from the economics into it. But yeah, so you went to some of the I'm going to be in Manhattan in March for a uh, for a consultation for facial feminization well, surgery. Pardon me? Before your consultation, we'll do donuts then. Where? Where's where's the best donuts? I Where cannot you've, you've been there. Cannot choose a favorite friend in Manhattan. You have to say several friends. But um, do you like cake or yeast or or mochi? Yeah. <laughs> yes. I'm not mochi. I'm no. I'm I'm I'm, yes. I'm not a big fan of the mochi. I, I never have been. Um, other than that, it, okay. Let me do it this way. Let me ask you rather than favorite donut places. What are your favorite donuts? Oh, so I love a cruller. Like it's kind of like you know they like you know how to make an omelet they know you're a good chef if you know right. how to do cruller, they know you're a good donut maker yes i love me a good cruller they're just so, they're they're the best they're nice and light and fluffy they've got that nice oh they're just yeah they are very very good i'm gonna have to go to misfit donuts not ridge donuts uh, yeah. that's amy's place <laughs> <laughs> See, the great thing about misfit real. that's why i can't say which one i i have a I could name different favorite donuts at different favorite shops. That's the only way you yeah. can do it. Yeah, my I like Misfit because they're vegan, so yeah. I can justify the three thousand calories that I take there because it's vegan. It can't be bad. Exactly. I said that recently. I you know we there's there a lot of the places now have vegan donuts, and I had one from let's say the Donut Project uh, in the Village, and I was like, oh, it's I can have as many of these as I want because it's vegan. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely it's perfect and this was perfect this is a great hour yeah uh, plus actually this is it's been actually great chatting with you same here uh, i mean do you have anything more anything more so you just want to say thank you or just not good thanks for coming on and supporting this little upstate podcast we appreciate it because i know when sometimes when we deal with people in the city they're like are you guys in rochester we're like or, uh, or no are you guys in new york we're like yeah it's a big state we're way upstate but we're still in the state well first of all i love rochester um and that was the most fun i had working for the state was traveling all over the state and meeting really neat people and seeing what they're doing and uh, uh and I love what you both are doing and i think you're badasses and so i'm excited to be friends and work together in the future and you knew where a Rondecoit was, so I was really impressed with that. Favorite colleagues. Yeah, it's, it's such a great place, a Rondecoit. Almost as good as uh, Swilberg, which is where I'm from. Cool. Anyhow, anyhow, it's been so much fun chatting with you, Lindsay. Good luck. I hope that we can get you back on after you become borough president and we can hear about all the windmills that you've tilted at. Absolutely. Thank you so Thank you. much. You're welcome. Amy and I are going to come back with a real quick wrap up right after this. Thank you so much for listening. And uh, we're right back. This is Transformation Thursday. To financially support Transformation Thursday, go to transformationthursday.com and that will bring you to our Patreon page. Once there, click on the Become a Patron button. You can also follow us online on Facebook. You can follow us by searching for Transformation Thursday podcast. And please join our private Facebook group by searching Transformation Thursday on Facebook. On Twitter and Instagram, you can follow us at TransThursPod. To make sure you stay up to date with all the latest episodes, please subscribe to the Transformation Thursday podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google 
Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On Apple Podcasts, please leave us a five-star rating and a short review. It's free, and it does help get Transformation Thursday out to a larger audience. Finally, Transformation Thursday is copyrighted material, all rights reserved, 2020. Welcome back to Transformation Thursday. I'm Penny Sterling, and my pronouns are she, her. And I'm Amy Stevens, and my pronouns are she, her. Yeah. Yeah, are you sure about that? <laughs> yeah, well, that was whole yeah, I was just gonna Go say, ahead. we're so excited about this. It was such a fantastic interview, so. It, it really was, and what a transformation she's had in her life. You know, literally, she's done, she's done literally a 180 in her career and in her personal life from uh, essentially aiding and abetting the, 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 the really, I don't wanna say rotten, but I'm gonna say rotten, rotten, sort of power structure that there is in New York state politics and probably American politics as a whole and has, has done one day and is fighting against it. And she's straight up calling the governor of New York state a monster uh, and, 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 and working against that, against the person that actually got her her start because that was what she needed to do. That was an amazing transformation as far as I'm concerned. Well, and I, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago in our interview with Victor Sanchez, you know, about Rochester politics and the machine of politics. And, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of times that transformation that you just mentioned is what Lindsay's doing is she's taking herself out as a cog of that machine and saying, you know what, I'm willing to blow this up. And I think that's the transformation that we need to see in politics is people that are there to help and what you just said about being close to those pain points and how can we help those people work through those pain points if it's affordable home it's affordable housing it's services in the city she touched upon my you know unsolicited touched upon my pet project of mental health care access so you know if we can get services to communities that need it and alleviate those pain points those are the things that are really going to help people and that's what stood out for me is that she's she's at the point of her life where she's she's willing to blow up the machine to help to help those people who are really in pain in her community around her yeah even blowing up the machine is, is preferable than having the machine continually grind them down uh, yeah, this was um, it's such an amazing thing to do and such an amazing person. And when I go to uh, when I go to Manhattan in March for my facial feminization surgery, I think I may bring her. I don't know. Maybe I'll bring maybe I think I'll give her a taste of I'll, you. You pick out your two favorite Ridge donuts and I'll pick out my two favorite Misfit donuts and I'll bring them to her and see which ones she likes the best. What do you think of that idea? I think that's a good challenge. Yeah. Or if you go there sooner, yeah, I'll give you them and you can take care of it. I, I got think a that's feeling I'll be there sooner. Yeah, yeah, probably so. Either way, it's been a great conversation. Uh, this is the sort of stuff that I just eat up and uh, I'm glad that we're able to do stuff like this. Um, is there anything more you want to add, Amy? No, I'm I'm really at a good spot. I re feel really good about this interview. I know you did a lot of legwork to get this lined up. Thank you very much. It's, oh, it's like, yeah, it's like asking me to do, yeah, it was, it's, you know, you, you like mental health. I like research and asking questions. So it works out great for both of us. Um, and okay, so that's it for this week's edition of Transformation Thursday. Good night, Amy. Good night, Betty.